History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 154 in the Mapatka people under Chief Nkapai had just raided the Boers along the upper Bushman's River and near the new town of Vienen. Joining the Batka were the San Raiders you heard about in episode 152. The area around the Imzumvubu River had been unstable ever since the Amabatka fled there during Shaka's time and they now lived west of the Amampondu who were ruled by Chief Fakuka Ngungush. It's important to note that both Amampondo and the Amabatka used to live further north in Natal before Shaka's fractious wars began and led to the movement of the people known as the Mpatkani. The Amampondo did not trust Amabatka, calling them thieves. The arrival of the Boers in Natal meant they had a new powerful possible ally, but they quickly learned that the Boers were not to be trusted either, as you're going to hear in this episode. Faku regularly communicated with the foot-trekkers, and by now, the Mabatka had made the fatal decision to steal more than 700 head of cattle from the trekkers near Vienen, along with 50 horses. The Volksrat in Peter Maritzburg had had enough. They met in November and ordered Andries Pretorius and Commandant Hendrik Stephanus Lombard to lead a commander of 260 Boers to extract maximum revenge from the Mabatka. Chief Fodo of the Langwini, who lived between the Batka and the Boers, had also been raided, so he and about a hundred of the Langwini warriors joined the Boer commander seeking their own form of restitution. On the 26th of November 1841, the commander set off from Pindamarisburg with 50 wagons, and by the 19th of December they had arrived at Nkapai's great place. In the ensuing attack, 26 men, 10 women and 4 children were killed. The Boers seized 3,000 cattle and 2,000 sheep. The numbers have been contested over the years, but the fact that women and children died has been confirmed. Not a single Boer was hurt, although some of the Ilangwini were wounded in the exchange. The Ilangwini captured a number of the Mapatka women and children, planning to take them back to their villages. They also seized a number of sheep and goats. The Boers demanded these sheep and goats be brought to them, then had the women and children released. However, it was the Boer decision to seize at least 17 of the Amabatra children they said had been orphaned in the attack that was going to lead to a great deal of interest by the anti-slavery lobby in the Cape and in England. The Boers claimed they would be looking after the children and took them back with them to Peter Maritzburg, where they had become servants for the trekkers. The obvious other action, of course, was to leave the children with their people to be brought up by uncles and aunts. However, the trekkers needed labour. These children would grow up technically as slaves in and around Maritzburg. Some were eventually exchanged for horses, and one we know about was sold later for 100 rix dollars. The folk believed they had every right to treat the children in this way. It was their next act that reinforced the perception amongst the Amampondo that they could not be trusted. As I said, Pretorius heard about the sheep and goats that had been taken by the Mlanguini and demanded these be handed over. Amampondo chief Faku facilitated the return, personally bringing the flocks to the Boers before they departed for Maritzburg. But Pretorius counted the sheep and saw some were missing. Thirty-six had vanished. Chief Fodo of the Mlanguini, erstwhile ally of the Boers, was brought forward, and he said he had slaughtered the sheep for his warriors to enjoy a hearty meal. Instead of playing it cool, allowing his war party ally some leeway, Pretorius played the disciplinarian and had Fodo arrested and then chained to a wagon. 
he would remain chained to that wagon all the way back to Maritzburg, and there he'd spend a year in jail for a rather vague crime of allowing some of the sheep he'd helped capture be eaten by some of the men who'd liberated them. The Boers were not exactly playing this moment intelligently. The leaders were always under pressure to prove to the mob how tough they could be, but a thoughtless blunt blunder almost always is an own goal. Not satisfied with the chief's punishment, Pretorius ordered a number of Languini to be tied with leather rimpies, then to be held up off the ground, their joints stretched in a kind of medieval torture moment. Some of the Languini were seriously hurt by this punishment, but the Boers believed they had made a point of punishing their allies for the sheep-stealing incident. Amambondo chief Fanku observed all of this and was shaken by the trekkers' violence. On one hand, the Amambondo relished the Mabatra being butchered, on the other, they were stunned that an ally of the Boers could be treated like this, and that prompted Faku to immediately seek protection from the Boers' arch-enemy, the English. Faku had already approached Wesleyan missionaries, William Hahn Garner, Reverend Jenkins, and Reverend Palmer, who had travelled to Faku's homestead on the Mgazi River. It was the first time the news about what the trekkers had done to the Mabatka began to emerge, and the missionaries were quite disgusted by the somewhat exaggerated version of events presented by Faku. From their point of view, the foretrekkers, with the advantage of their horses and guns and wagons, had raided the Amabatka in an unprovoked attack. The decision by Pretorius to take more than a dozen Bakka children back to Maritzburg didn't help matters. He was basically slave-trading, they alleged. Chief Faku wrote a letter about this time to Governor Sir George Napier, expressing his fear that he would be next, that the Boers were seizing livestock and children willy-nilly south of the Imzumvubu River, and that matters could not continue, and begged to be placed under the protection of the British government. The three missionaries hurried back from Faku's home to brief Reverend William Shaw, who was the superintendent of the Wesleyan missions and based at Peddy, hundreds of kilometres from the scene of the crime. Shaw duly briefed the British governor, and this is where Fortricker leader Pretorius had failed to properly assess actions. The raid on Inkapai was a profound error of judgment, killing women and children in a blundering attack on a kraal when seeking to recover lost animals is not the cleverest act. Seizing children as labour is even more insensate. The governor ordered a military detachment to proceed to Ponderland at once. So, on January 28, 1841, two companies of the 27th Regiment set off from Petty, accompanied by 54 wagons under command of Captain Thomas Charlton Smith. They were joined by an officer and 50 men of the Coloured Mounted Rifles, as well as an officer and eight men from the Royal African Rifles and a lieutenant and four men from the Royal Engineers. They reached the Mgazi River without incident and formed a camp there. Check out Google Maps. The Mgazi River is south of Port St. John's, almost directly east from modern-day Mtata. While the British prepared their next steps, the Volksrad was busy writing letters. They had already sent a long letter on January 14th to Napier, demanding to be declared a free and independent state, with the title Republic of Port Natal and Adjoining Countries. Sir George did not believe that this letter was representative of the entire Boer community. Soon, the exchange of letters reached a frenzy, with Napier dashing off his thoughts to Lord John Russell, Secretary of State for War and the Colonies back in jolly old England. Because of the Boers' actions, said Napier, he was no longer discussing independence with the Trekkers, and he awaited further instructions. The Folkestrad secretaries in Maritzburg scribed their own letter dated April 7th, and this was sent to Napier. 
The Boers attempted to vindicate themselves for the attack on Inkapai. They tried a little diplomacy too, saying, We are, however, very glad that Your Excellency has stationed a detachment of troops at the Imzumvubu, as we trust that the troops will have sufficient influence to protect Faku against Kapai. But they added ominously that they will also assure the latter that their protection is no license to him to enable him now to plunder us more securely. Lord Russell's next note to Napier arrived on the 17th of April, where he instructed the governor to make it known that Her Majesty's government were determined to support him in the most decisive measures for repressing such lawless and unjustifiable aggression as the rumoured attack on the Inkapai tribe. The two sides, the Boers and the English, continued to trade letters, harping on about their specific points of view. Hardliners living amongst the trekkers were itching to take action and warn Pretorius and the Rat that actions speak louder than words. The English had to be somehow convinced to stay away from their Republic Natalia. Boer farms had been developing rapidly in Natal, and this did not go unnoticed. Many local Amazulu clans moved back onto these farms, partly to work as labour and partly because the Boers were a kind of nominal protection. But many in the Volksrat saw every Zulu as a threat, despite being short of labour. Their lives had been upended repeatedly by the Amazulu. They could not accept the local population as anything other than a danger. Given their recent experience, you could say they had developed a level of psychosis, a paranoia. So, on August 2, 1841, the Ra took a rather unwise decision to force all these Amazulu squatters off their farms. It went further, ruling that none had any right to claim any part of Natal at all. They should be removed, resolved the Volksrat, to the tract of land between the Umtamvuna River and the Imzumvubu River. On the surface, this appeared to be a reasonable suggestion. The land is excellent here, enough water and good soils. However, no one had bothered to ask the local Amazulu what they thought of this forced removal, and furthermore, someone already lived there. The Volksrat resolution was very specific about this. If necessary, it said force was to be used to effect this removal, and a resident Boer would be deployed to supervise native affairs there, and he would be empowered to enter into treaties with the local chiefs. Baku had already mentioned these two rivers in his own communication, so this threat by the Volksrat to force people to semigrate was double jeopardy for the trekkers. The fact that the Volksrat actually never enforced this resolution is not the point. It was the threat of action that worried colonial officials and missionaries. Meanwhile, the very Reverend Shaw had put his quill to paper and proceeded to write a letter to the Zeit Afrikaan newspaper, which was published on August 3rd. 1841, where he cited what he said was overwhelming evidence that the Boers had ransacked Inkapai Zamapatka in a dastardly act, saying the victims were entirely guiltless of any aggression and that he had nothing to do with the theft of cattle and sheep. We know that this is bending the truth, to put it mildly, but by seizing the children, the Boers had created a much bigger problem for themselves. Instead of this being a sort of African raid and counter-raid, it turned into whites slave trading. By deciding to also announce a future forced removal campaign sending Amazulu refugees south, that meant towards the Cape Colony, they'd stirred up a hornet's nest. And by now you know how vociferous the missionaries were about stopping the slave trade and how politically sensitive that was for ambitious governors. Sir George Napier, who'd been entertaining less confrontational actions against the Boers, now experienced a significant change of heart. 
On August 21st, Lord John Russell instructed the governor to make arrangements for the reoccupying of Port Natal, but said, He will take care not to interfere with the emigrant farmers, unless the troops or the colonists or our friends among the tribes are attacked. The British were extremely respectful of the Boers' military prowess, even now. On September 3rd, 1841, Captain Smith, sitting at his camp on the Mgazi River, no doubt fishing and possibly enjoying the beauty of the wild coast, was instructed to write a letter to the Raat in Maritzburg that Great Britain could not acknowledge a portion of her own subjects as an independent republic. Of course, the Raat scoffed at being called the subjects of the British Empire. Smith also wrote that all their trade would be monitored as British possessions and warned that a military force would be placed in the territory, not their territory, that territory. This letter arrived in Maritzburg on 27th of September, 1841. The Raad reply was sent on October 11th, where they declined to agree to the governor's proposals. A rejection letter. Napier ignored the letter and issued a proclamation on the 2nd of December 1841 in which he sternly admonished the Boers for their plan to forcibly relocate Amazulu to land that belonged to the Amampondu. Napier reminded the Boers that they remained British subjects and could not be independent. Troops were going to be sent to Durban, said Napier. Any resistance to their arrival would be met with force and the soldiers would be checking for the possessions of firearms that were being kept for the purpose of attacking local Africans. Napier did not say if they would be coming overland or by sea. The Boers expected the British to arrive on their ships. Captain Smith thought it would take him around 17 days to march from the Mgazi River mouth to Port Natal. But this was December and rainy season, and he was being hopelessly optimistic. The Folkshard sent the response to Napier's proclamation on February 2, 1842, where the Peter Maritzburg Landros Jakubus Bosov outlined at length the reason for the Furtrekkers departing the Cape and their wish to be independent. This letter is regarded as an eloquent defence, where Bosov disavowed, Most positively that we are animated by an ingrained hatred towards the English nation. All that they wanted, he said, was representative government, and they promised not to attack local Amazulu or any other Africans. At least that was their claim. While all of this was going on, Andres Pretorius, the old wizened leader, had been boycotting the Fultrad's recent meetings because they had refused to grant him title leads for all his land. He wrote to his former colleagues and formally resigned as Commandant General, as well as a member of the Volksrat of Natalia. What irked him still further was the fact that his nemesis, the hated Stephanus Maritz, was now the Landros of Durban. Pretorius didn't stop there. He claimed he hadn't been paid a salary for months, and that the Raj should pay 50 rix dollars from his salary as a fine for his departing so suddenly, and then donate that money to the church. Puffed up with a kind of grandiose hubris, the Boer hero was playing hard to get. Pretorius was a gifted negotiator. He was aware that as the Boers' main military commander, they would soon be in a pickle with the British army on its way, and the Volksrad would have to back down. News of Pretorius's temper tantrum and the British army's imminent arrival spread across Natalia, unnerving the Furtrekkers. By now, the Volksrad had appointed Lombard as acting commandant for the district of Pietermaritzburg, but the Boers of the district did not want Lombard, they wanted Pretorius, and eventually the Volksrad had to reappoint him as Commandant General. Public meetings were being held throughout Natalia, and the Trekkers indicated they were willing to fight for independence. Napier was correct, however, in his assessment that this view was not universal. 
There were many Boers who were sick and tired of the crazies who seemed to take control of the political process, the lawlessness and dissension, and a faction developed that were prepared to sacrifice independence for stability and good governance. In Peter Marisburg, there was growing consternation. After such a long slog, all the battles, now the English were on their way again to seize the port, and perhaps their independence was over. A truly bizarre set of incidents followed, and this would involve the Dutch. The Boer trials and tribulations were being monitored by sympathetic people in the Netherlands, so it was no surprise that a Dutch entrepreneur arrived in Durban on the 21st of March 1842 on board a ship called the Brasilia, which was flying the Dutch flag. Another peculiar person was about to make his appearance on the southern African shores. He was Johan Arnold Smellekamp, who disembarked along with the captain Cornelius Rios, They were rowed ashore across the dangerous sandbar in Durban Bay by sailors heavily armed with cutlasses and pistols. Are the English yet in possession of this place? Rios is reported to have shouted in Dutch, to which the Boers, relieved that these weren't the English, yelled back that they had not. Rios was just in time. Smellicamp was what you could call a shyster or a grifter. He'd been hired by George Gerard Urg, a Dutch businessman who wanted to establish trade with the Natal Boers between Holland and Port Natal. Urich published a pamphlet in Holland called The Emigrants at Natal, which was a political term that linked the Dutch in the Cape and now Natal with the former greatness of Holland. Urich believed the Dutch should return and seize the Cape as a strategic corner of the world. When the Boers realized that their plight here in a tiny corner of planet Earth was being promoted by such worthies as well-off Netherlands businessmen, they were ecstatic. Smellekamp was duly invited by the Volksraad to meet them in Pietermannersburg, and Smellekamp and Captain Rios embarked on the relatively short journey up the hill to Maritzburg from Durban, and as they reached the Mzunduzi Valley, Boers, including Andres Pretorius, Raad President J.J. Berger, and town magistrate the erudite Boschow, rode out to meet them. People were cheering, and they had gone to a great deal of trouble to decorate their houses in the colours of the Dutch flag. Rius and Smillekamp handed out free Dutch Bibles and prayer books and a copy of the Emigrants at Natal pamphlet. Everyone immediately came to the conclusion that the Dutch government had distributed this important document. It had not. During a public meeting, the two visitors read a letter from Urch in support of their struggle, but later, when the public left and the Raad pressed Smillekamp, he admitted the Dutch king was not involved in this communication. The Raad leader, Berger, announced that they wanted to be formally placed under the protection of the Dutch king, so much for the touted independence. And Smellekamp, living up to his name as a bit of a shyster, said he'd draw up a document on behalf of the king declaring that Natalia was a province of colonial occupation for the Netherlands. Smellekamp signed the so-called treaty with a flourish, saying it was now accepted in the name of the king of the Netherlands subject to his majesty's approval. By the way, Urich's support back in Holland was officially commemorated in South Africa. The town of Urichstadt is named after him. So after this rather bizarre bit of chicanery, Smellekamp and Rios returned to Durban on the 16th of April to auction the goods they brought from Amsterdam merchants, including gin, eau de cologne, cigars, wine, shaving soap, linseed oil, books, cheese, shoes, silk clothing, tin, glass and copperware, and white, green and black paint. Watching this, with some misgiving, with a few English residents left in Durban, particularly George Cato, after whom Cato Manor is named. 
Cato and another English trader, John Douglas, decided to remove a flagpole that belonged to Cato, and one which they'd been ordered to fly the Dutch flag. This incensed Captain Rios, and he ordered his men to beat up Douglas, almost killing him in the assault by all accounts. Cato fled before he could be caught. With that, Rios dusted off his hands and sailed away on the Brasilia, but not before he jotted a few salient points about these English traitors to Pretorius. Pretorius arrived shortly afterwards to investigate. Still suffering the effect of the terrible beating, Douglas was fined 500 rix dollars and set free, but Cato was dragged back to Pietermattersburg to join Fodo of the Linguini. Smellicamp, meanwhile, had decided to remain in southern Africa, taking the overland route back to Cape Town from Durban, along with Borshoff, the Maritzburg magistrate. But they made it only as far as Graf Reinet, when the local British administrator arrested Smellicamp for trespassing. He was supposed to travel with a pass if he wanted to journey across the country. Smellicamp was deported back to Holland, still carrying funds he'd been given by the Volksraad to supposedly negotiate a treaty with the king on the trekkers' behalf. He never did. But now the British had made final arrangements for their long march and were setting off. Before that, a reinforcement unit of 237 men had been dispatched from Grahamstown in late January to support Captain Smith. This was led by Captain Lonsdale. The new units arrived in Umgazi in February. Captain Smith set off from Petty after some delay on April the 1st, 1842, April Fool's Day. Pouring rain slowed their departure as they sang, We fight to conquer, as they went. Joining them was Wesleyan missionary Reverend James Archbell and his family. He planned to start a mission station in Natal. So 263 troops marched off, along with a large wagon train of around 50 wagons, one howitzer, two light field guns, 60 English drivers, and dozens of cape-coloured and black attendants. Smith followed the usual coastal track, and the march took almost a month. The seasonal rains turned into a deluge, as the English found out. On the 19th of April, Smith was delayed at the Mzumkulu River by extremely unfavourable weather. But it was also here that Dick King joined the British, and being a wagoner of vast experience and knowing the country intimately, he was able to give Smith valuable assistance. It was fortunate for the British that Dick King had joined, as you're going to hear in a future episode. Another English trader, Henry Ogle, joined the camp after they reached the Mkomazu River on the 27th of April. Ogle and a number of other traders told Captain Smith they had fled Durban, worried they'd be conscripted by the Boers, and complained of ill-treatment by what they called the Dutch barbarians and the Boer ruffians. If you've visited the Wild Coast, you know it's a place of rivers, 122 rivers, in fact, between Umgazi and Durban. By the time this bedraggled army had made it to within striking distance of the port, most of the men were suffering from excruciating sunburn, their feet were in tatters, from marching across the swollen rivers, their boots in pieces, filled with sand marching on the beaches. There's a great academic paper about what happened next, published by A.E. Cubbon from the University of Zululand, called An Exposition of the Clash of Anglo-Fortreca Interests at Port Natal. As he points out, the Boers could easily have ambushed this ragged column at any point, but the truth is the Fortrekas had no idea at all where the British were. They thought they were coming by ship. Despite the fact that the wagon train was two miles long, the Amazulu guys had managed to keep their presence a secret throughout this remarkable journey. 
When Pretorius arrived back in Marinsburg, dragging poor Cato with him on the 30th of April, the Boer leader had not a clue that the British army under Captain Smith was only 50 kilometres from Durban. Not that they were in any condition for immediate action. As you'll hear next episode, it was going to be all action partly because of a lack of communication between Pretorius and Smith. Ah yes, the curse of misunderstanding runs deep in Southern African history. Please rate the podcast on iTunes or any of your favorite platforms. It helps escalate the visibility. You can head off to desmondlatham.blog where I'm going to load an update about this episode. You can also email me from there. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.